0: You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin MacLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Uh, this week's topic will be the goddess Persephone. Um, Persephone is known as uh, either Persephone or Proserpina, uh, and sometimes is also referred to as the Kore. And she's mainly known for being queen of the underworld in ancient Greece. Uh, her spouse is Hades, um, the, the rather passive king of the underworld. And um, Persephone is, is connected, with, she's connected with a couple of different uh, rites and mysteries. Um, she's associated with uh, the coming, you know, with, with the seasons, with the coming of winter and spring. Um, in in the particular myths associated with her, and of course, that's that's sort of one level of interpretation of um, of looking at Persephone and looking at her, um, the meaning of her story. Now, Persephone is an interesting figure because, um, from the perspective of the dark feminine. Um, she again, very similar to what happened with Medusa as we talked about in the last episode there's there's this sense of um, the way her the, the particular story of her abduction by Hades uh, into the underworld um, it kind of had takes on different inflections um, over time. And one of the things is that she is, um, You know, again, in some cases, she is the helpless young girl who's been carried off by this um, sort of wicked man or wicked uncle, really, in this case, um, who has, uh, you know, who's forcibly raping her. It's often referred to as the rape of Persephone or the rape of Proserpina. Um, But the actual original Greek story does tell a slightly different, uh, has a slightly different take on that, of course. And like a lot of these stories in Greek mythology where you have a, some horrifically traumatic event like a rape or um, cannibalism or incest or something like that, um, one has to be very, very careful about what the meaning is. Of that act is because, uh, as I've mentioned, you're dealing with gods. You're not dealing with with mortals. You can't apply the same. You know, it's. It, I mean, certainly you can take the point of view. If you're a woman, you can say, "Well, how terrible it is that she's uh, that she's carried off like that." Um, but there's, there's 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 a couple of other ways to to look at this at this story. So let's um, let's let's get into what uh, the details are. First, let's start with who she is herself. As I mentioned. Um, daughter of, um, uh, and she's a daughter of the goddess Demeter, who is the goddess of sort of grain and agriculture, um, similar to Cirrus or Cirrus in the, in the Roman, uh, which is where you get the word cereal from. Uh, she has to do with, she, so she's, so her mother, of course, is the one who, um, you know, she's, she's, she has a mother goddess element. She's the one who makes the earth fertile. And I'm just going to read to you a little bit, uh, just a sort of a summary of, um, Persephone and her and her and, and and the basic myth that is associated with her. Again, I I, I always uh, refer to Pierre Grimal for these. Um okay, Grimal says the goddess of the underworld and wife of Hades is Persephone. She was the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, okay? So she is fully a goddess. She's not a demigoddess. Although another tradition makes her the daughter of Zeus and Styx. Styx, of course, being um, the personification of the river that runs through the underworld. Um, Hades fell in love with Persephone, his niece, and abducted her while she was picking flowers on the plain around Etna in Sicily. This abduction occurred with the complicity of Zeus and in the absence of Demeter. Eventually, Zeus ordered Hades to restore Persephone to her mother, but this was no longer possible for the young girl had eaten a pomegranate seed, which was enough to tie her to the underworld forever. As a compromise, Zeus decided that she should divide her time between the underworld and the world above as Hades's wife Persephone plays a part in the legends of Heracles, uh, Orpheus, Theseus, and Pyrethus. Uh, she was also said to have fallen in love with Adonis. She appears with Demeter in the Eleusian mysteries in Rome. She was identified with Proserpina. Okay. So quite, quite a bit to unpack there. First, let's start with the story. So, um, so the question becomes, um, just looking at my notes here. So the question then becomes, how does um, w- what goes down with this particular um, abduction story? Uh, and uh, for me, I have sort of three um, different themes that come out of out of the Persephone story and out of her out of the role that she eventually assumes. First, we have the idea of um, whether or not she's a rape victim, there's another mythological motif, which I call the bad boy lover motif, you know, for lack of a better term, that is um, that, that also is at play here, but that tends to be ignored. And that's I think that's rather significant. Um, also, the, um, this is sort of a mythological, allegorical configuration of the movement from girlhood to womanhood. And uh, hence her name Kore, which means young girl. And that's generally a term applied to girls before they are married, like a virginal name. Uh, that's very significant here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, particularly about um, Jung talks about the Kore as an archetype. And it, it does it's um, very, I think it's critical here. Um, and lastly, I would say her, this eternal return that she makes because she spends time in the underworld then she's up and back on the earth with her mother and then she's back in the underworld. Um, it, it makes her kind of an ideal, um, figure for the Orphics, um, who, um, introduced this idea of, uh, really are the first ones in Greece to I- introduce this idea of, I, I use the word salvation very loosely here, but the idea that, um, one could, one had some control over their destiny after death. Okay. And in, in the Orphic myth, she is actually um, the mother of uh, Dionysus, also known as Zegrus, um, with, with, with Zeus, who's also her father. And um, the, the, the story of Dionysus in, in, in the Orphic uh, cosmogony uh, gives Persephone a rather interesting kind of, uh, central role. It's like souls are are given to her in tribute as payment for, um, the Titan's attempt to, uh, destroy her son. Uh, but we'll get to that one as well. Okay. So let's, let's start with the, um, what I'm going to call the, uh, the, the bad boy lover. Um, I wrote a paper that's actually on academia.edu, uh, gets a lot of, um, gets a lot of view it's uh, i refer to it as it was something i wrote actually in uh my doctoral program called 50 shades of gray and pomegranate seeds and what um what it refers to is the idea of the virginal young girl um you know and and the i think in particular it, it, i think it started because um my the idea for this particular piece started when a colleague of mine um had talked about how uh, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey had grossed something obscene like $90 million or something like that. I, f- I forget. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But it was, it was a huge amount of money. And he made the comment that he just thought, This is disgusting. This shows the state of uh, the society that we're in. And I'm going, Well, wait a minute. Um, or is it just everybody's kind of in denial of what society actually is or what, or what human desire and fantasy actually is? Okay. And um, I, I, of course, compare it. I, I grew up in the '70s, and you know, so of course, I'm familiar with a lot of these um, rock stars and rock legends who um, are who are around. You know, who were who are considered at that time. They had like a, they have a great mystique to them. Okay, they were very, um, you know, they're very very good looking, and you know, kind of strutting it out on stage, whether they were you know singers, guitar players, uh, drum, you know, whoever they were. Um, and they were—they are frequently um, were surrounded by groupies, you know, thirteen, you know, 12, 13 year thirteen-year-old girls, uh, you know, up to. It was interesting. I remember reading Pamela Debar's um, sort of autobiography. I'm with the band, and she mentioned. I remember her mentioning in there that by the time a girl got to be eighteen in that scene, she was considered to be an old hag. <laughs> So it's, it's a, it's a rather interesting kind of concept and it's interesting because now people look back, um, I see articles like, you know, the, the 10, 10, 10 celebrities who are actually monsters, like things like, you know, with titles like that. And they're referring to a lot of the, um, the rock stars of the seventies. Now, maybe some of them were monsters. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I've never, never had sex with any of them. Don't know what it's like. Um. But I do know that um, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea of referring to these guys as rapists and monsters who take advantage of young girls, especially when I read the accounts where these girls are, like, lined up outside their door and practically pulling each other's hair, trying to, like, you know, wanting to be the one to get into the room with them, okay? Um Now, you may say yes, but that's the problem. There's the idea of it's the young girl, and the young girl, she's innocent, and she's chaste, and here's this older man manipulating and corrupting her. Um, And while on the one hand, I look at it and I say, okay, yes, you know what? Young girls don't know anything, and they may be very easily do stupid things and be taken advantage of. Certainly from a legal perspective, this is why you have laws about age of consent and things like that. Um, from that perspective, I could say, okay, you know what, there's some safeties and pl- safety measures in place to keep people from, you know, not, not that it not necessarily stops people, but to um, try to keep, uh, you know, teen pregnancy and disease and other disasters, you know, from, from occurring. Um, although those laws get to be ridiculous when it's sort of like, okay, you have an 18-year-old guy and a 17-year-old girlfriend and they get caught, and now he's branded a sex offender for life, which is just, that's just absolutely stupid, okay? Because, um, you know, because so, what's consent? Oh, all of a sudden now you're, you're 18, and all of a sudden now your brain suddenly flips, and suddenly now you're an intelligent adult making intelligent decisions. Um, I mean, if you believe in neuroscience, and um, in, in really in, when we talk about brain science, you know, the frontal lobes of the brain aren't even formed, you know, fully formed until you're 23. So you're going to be making stupid decisions at least up until then. And there are people who make stupid decisions their entire life. So it's, you know, I mean, I I can include myself in that. I've made some very stupid decisions in my life, especially when it comes to relationships. So, you know, it's, um, you know, so I I don't know. So the whole consent thing is um, a a little sketchy to me. But what does that have to do with Persephone? Well, the original Greek story of Persephone... Um, it was an interesting article I had read in the Classical Quarterly um, that I make reference to um, where, uh, of course, what Persephone has disappeared. Her mother doesn't know what's happened to her. Nobody will tell her. Uh, finally, it's the goddess. Um, it's it's Hel- Helios, the god of the sun, and also um, Hecate, uh, god, another go- underworld goddess, who we will be talking about, um, are the ones who cue her into what has happened. And when she finds out that Zeus was complicit, then she gets very angry and she makes the earth barren. Okay, she just, she won't allow anything to grow. So this is the reason for the compromise, okay? So Zeus tries to get um, Hades to give her back. But see, now she's eaten the fruit of the underworld. Once you eat the fruit of the underworld, you are stuck there, okay? And what she eats are pomegranate seeds. And it depends, sometimes she only eats one, other times they say she eats nine. It depends on the version. And there could be other numbers too but the what's interesting is that when her mother she's finally reunited with her mother and her mother finds out that she's eaten the pomegranate seeds um persephone's her her statement is rather interesting and it translates to excuse me (coughs) it translates to my husband tricked me into eating them and now i feel that way towards him okay meaning she's now in love with her husband now, that's really very interesting because, first of all, you have the idea of the pomegranate seed as, as kind of an aphrodisiac or love charm, okay? Um, and pomegranate certainly uh, did, you know, that, that was considered to be a, a, a fruit that increased or uh, sensuality or desire. Um, but also, so it's almost like he's, cre- he's created a love charm to make her fall in love with him. Uh, At least that's what Persephone says. And I said, I can't help but reading this story and feel like, you know what, this doesn't sound to me like the the poor victim who's been been carried off and raped. I mean, she might have been carried off. But this sounds also more like the young girl who... well, on one hand, it could be, you know, because Hades, of course, you know, who would want to be married to the king of the underworld? I mean, you know, in, in terms of, you know, potential spouses that one could have. Gee, that sounds great. You know, I get to, to live in the gloomiest uh, gloomiest palace anywhere in the, in the universe um, under the earth. You know, uh, why would you want to do that? Um, I should also note, by the way, that um, Hades falls in love with Persephone because Aphrodite, um, at the beginning of that story it says Aphrodite decides she's going to extend her kingdom to the underworld. So she has Eros, her son, uh, shoot an arrow at Hades to make him fall in love. and uh, the first first girl he sees is Persephone. And uh, this is why he he acts as he does. Now, <clears throat> um, it, it's interesting, you know, so it, I'm looking, I look at this whole story, and I, to me, it almost sounds like, I mean, obviously, it doesn't sound like Persephone knew him beforehand, but it's almost like he's the dangerous, um, dark man who sweeps the girl off her feet and takes her virginity. You know what I mean? And um, that in in some fashion, she actually kind of likes this, but she can't admit that to her mother. So she was tricked. Okay. Now, whenever I say this, there's always people who get very irritated. They think somehow I'm being like a rape apologist or something like that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Rape, you know, rape occurs when two people are not consenting. Okay. If, you know. I think John Oliver said it best. It's uh, in, in, in his thing on um, sex. Ed uh, his little episode on that. He had said, uh, "It's like boxing. If 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 one of the people involved is not does not assume that you're in a boxing match, then then somebody's doing something illegal." Um, that's the way it is with sex. So then the question then becomes: It becomes a very gray area with girls who may actually have a desire for someone that their parents don't approve of or that their parents think is dangerous, and you're going to stay away from that, that one. Um, and you, I mean, we, we can't swear that this is what's happening with Persephone, but it's rather interesting how she kind of, um, she takes up her role as queen of the underworld. And by the way, she takes up a very active role in the underworld. Hades is very, very passive as a rule. We rarely hear about him asserting himself on anything. The only time you see Hades assert himself is in the story of Theseus and Pirithus, who, of course, come to the underworld because Pyrethus wants to abduct Persephone to be his own wife. And when he comes down and they had state their intentions, Hades just laughs, tells them to have a seat, and, of course, then when they're sitting is in the chairs of forgetfulness where they're stuck. And they can't leave until uh, Heracles comes and rescues them. Okay. Uh, In the story of Eros and Psyche, uh, Persephone is the one uh, who is sought out by um, uh, by st- by by Psyche or Psyche um, to to receive, receive her beauty cream for Aphrodite, and also Persephone is the one um, she's she's the one who cares for Adonis, <clears throat> and uh, she does fall in love with him. Her and Aphrodite have a disagreement about him, <clears throat> and he ends up in kind of a similar conundrum where he spends part of the year in the above world and part of the year below. So. Uh, you know she's and 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 when you read about her in the Odyssey and in other places, typically what's done is is the statement made is um, that uh, you know that people you know what what is queen you know what kind of illusions has Queen Persephone. Um, created. Nobody talks about Hades. They talk about Persephone. So she assumes a rather active role as queen of the underworld. Her husband's just very, very passive, which is very... Un- it's the reverse of what you would expect in the masculine-feminine. You have a passive masculine and you have an active feminine. But, of course, this is also the underworld, where things are not quite like they are in the above world. So so anyway, I, I, I tend to look at the Persephone story not so much as a... Um, you know, this poor, innocent young girl who's been carried off. And also, this, by the way, this also doesn't imply, it, there tends to be a thing of woman as temptress or woman as, um, you know, she's either got to be virginal or she's got to be a whore. And it's kind of like, you know what, I'm, I really am not happy with either one of those. To me, it's like, why can't you just have desire and want to enjoy sex just like just like anybody else nobody complains when men do it but when women do it somehow it's like oh well you know that's scandalous or she's this kind of person or that she's not anything she's a normal person with normal desires and I kind of feel that way about um you know uh you know I feel that way about Persephone but you know but I, I kind of you know I, I just feel that way. When I look at teenage girls, they're kind of at a place where, yeah, they are young, they're naive, um, and and frequently they they want different things in relationships anyway. I mean, you have men who, um, you know, a lot of times men are just looking for physical gratification, and women think they're getting into a relationship, okay? Um, there could be a lot of, that's a kind of a whole side discussion as to, you know, what might, what might be behind that, both biologically, um, in terms of the chakras, what might be behind that, you know, the, the, the sexual centers being in different places. Um, but whatever it is, um, there, there's definitely that, that kind of, um, that sort of disconnect there. And, um, yeah, I mean, and then there may be also be cases where young women, um, maybe you're not so comfortable um, you know where, where where the sexuality is there, but they may not be comfortable with it yet, and they you know and, and really like I said, it, it it it's a it's all a matter of person should be a matter of personal choice. Um, so I am not uh, I'm not a big fan of of saying that uh, women at that age have no idea what they're doing. Eh, may well in one sense no they don't, and in another sense um, they know what they want. Um, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that just because a woman, you know, says something or does something, she may be doing something because that's what she thinks she's supposed to do. She doesn't. It's not necessarily because she wants something. But having having lived through that that era of life, I do know that desire can be really, really, really strong at that age. You know, it's like you're trying to uh, to fight off a tsunami there of um, of hormones and and feelings. So you know, um, and I suppose these things are there to keep keep people in check and to keep these things in check um, but by the same token you also have to remember that um, you know it, I think what it, I think what okay I think it comes down to the idea that the girl who's entering womanhood or is newly a woman uh, also has a will of her own and to entirely discount that either as she's too naive and doesn't know what she's doing Um, Or, and in some cases, maybe she she knows enough to know that she doesn't want to do that. Okay, it can go either way. Um, But, you know, but but the idea that um, she is always the victim of somebody is something that I, not necessarily. Sometimes it is something that she chooses, but it's something that her family would not approve of. Uh, There's a set of, there's a motif that I do want to talk about in a future episode called the Hanging Virgins, and I've mentioned them before. You know, it's the motif, and, and you see this too in, in these other stories where the young girl um, falls in love with the dark stranger who, of course, turns out to be the devil or, or somebody, you know, you know, in Greek, in, in, in ancient Greek, it tends to be Dionysus, um, but the parents, of course, will not allow the match, so in grief, she, uh, she hangs herself, or she otherwise dies of a broken heart or kills herself or something, okay? So there's that motif as well, the, the denial of one's desire. Okay, and I mean, you know, again, we're talking about this in a mythological archetypal sense, Um, how that translates into the real world, into laws, into ethics is is a big, knotty question that I really don't want to go get too heavily into here. But it is one of those things that to me makes it not such a cut and dried thing. Um, You know, what is consent and when can you actually give it is 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 a big question. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the one angle. Now, the idea of the virginal girl becoming a woman. So what makes a girl a woman? Well, first of all, she's usually the body. There's body changes. Your body shape changes when you go from girlhood to womanhood. Um, and you usually start menstruating. That's when there, there you have the blood factor. Okay, um, so there's a motif, again, that you'll see in folklore and others of, of the virgin sacrifice, of the girl who sacrificed on the altar. And again, there's, a blood, there's blood involved, and, and this, this has to do with the idea of the death of the young girl who then is sort of reborn into a womanhood. And that's where she might have desire, that's where she might have children. I mean, certainly that was kind of a traditional expectation in a lot of cultures, still is for some people. Um, so there's this idea and, and I have to tell you just, just if I go back to my own memory of <clears throat> you know going from being a girl and to becoming a woman in your mind and for me it actually happened it happened in like a 30 minute time period it was the weirdest thing where you literally it's like you know you're, you're still interested in Barbies you know and then like t- an hour later you're, you're looking at guys you know and it's just like it's it was just the weirdest transition for me maybe that's why I'm a little hung up on it because it just seems like wait what like it is almost like an abduction. It's like your girlhood just disappeared like overnight and what 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 the f just happened there, you know? Um and so I guess that's kind of why I tend to feel um you know that there that it's a very powerful transition. It has a powerful psychological impact and it has a huge powerful um biological impact as well. And I think, you know, if you're not a woman, if you're if you're a man listening to this, you're not necessarily going to um understand that aspect of it okay and not not through your own fault it's just it's 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 one of those things that unless you've experienced it um it can be very very hard to understand and um it can lead to all kinds of things it can lead to depression it can lead to the rebellion i mean there's it's i mean it's a normal phase of life but like many phases of life in our culture we just don't know how to deal with them that's the whole really the whole point of rituals rituals are meant to move you from one phase of life to another and, um, you know, we don't, we, we don't live in a culture that has any kind of collective myth or ritual. Um, you know, we have parties and things, but it's not, there's not really a, a, a ritual for, um, moving into manhood or moving into womanhood. Okay. Th- those kinds of things, um, are, are not, uh, they haven't been part of modern culture. And I think the loss of ritual, to a certain degree, or the rituals we have—I'm sorry, not to not to keep going back—but the the rituals that we do have are very—they're kind of very watered down. They're very weak versions, so they don't they don't really have the impact of like an initiation. You know, they, it's not like you're being initiated into the next level for people. It's just become kind of a token thing, and that's that's kind of a shame because I feel like we do need to have something to. Um, Mark the importance of those transitions in in a significant way, but we we don't really have that in our culture. Um, I want to read a little bit um, Carl Jung's psychological aspects of the Kore, Kore archetype, and he's talking about, of course, this idea of the Kore as she appears in dreams and and in in folklore and in myth, and um, he makes this now he refers to you know Demeter, he refers to Persephone and Hecate, he refers to the whole um, cycle of, um, the, of, you know, which, which are going to be associated with the rites of Eleusis, um, and the mystery cults later on, but the, the whole journey of Demeter to go find her daughter and the sort of, um, you know, negotiating to, to have her, her return, um, her return on a cyclical basis. But, um, here's what Jung has to say in this, um, I'm reading from paragraph 311, if you happen to have, uh, collected works 9.1, which I've, I've, I've practically memorized this volume. It's crazy. Um, okay, so Jung says, as a matter of practical observation, the Kore often appears in women, in woman, as an unknown young girl, not infrequently as Gretchen, who's from Faust, okay, it's a reference there, or the unmarried mother. Another frequent modulation is the dancer, who is often formed by borrowings from classical knowledge, in which case the maiden appears as the corribant, uh, the maenad, or the nymph which are all um, very frenzied, very sexualized, very orgiastic, and sometimes very violent, too. Okay. An occasional variant is the Nixie or water sprite, who betrays her superhuman nature by her fish tail. Sometimes the Kore and mother figures slither down altogether to the animal kingdom, the favorite representatives then being the cat or the snake or the bear, or else some black monster of the underworld like the crocodile, or other salamander-like saurian creatures. The maiden's helplessness exposes her to all sorts of dangers, for instance, being devoured by reptiles or ritually slaughtered like a beast for sacrifice. Often there are bloody, cruel, and even obscene orgies which the innocent child falls victim. Sometimes it is a true Nakia, which is an underworld journey, a descent into Hades, and a quest for the treasure hard to attain, occasionally connected with orgiastic sexual rites or offerings of menstrual blood to the moon. Oddly enough, the various tortures and obscenities are carried out by an earth mother. There are drinkings of blood and bathings in blood and crucifixions. The maiden who crops up in case histories differs not inconsiderably from the vaguely flower-like Horae, and that the modern figure is more sharply delineated and not so unconscious. Okay, So there there's where he talks about the archetype and yeah to me this is sort of the persephone myth for me on another level is that transition into adolescence okay it's the transition from adolescence to uh, adulthood and um it's you know for girls like i said this this can have this um abduction-like quality. And it can also mean that, um, and this, this spouting of desire can make one want to go into places that, um, you know, the, the sensible, rational adults would say is dangerous. Whether it's ultimately dangerous or not, you know, I don't know, I suppose it would depend. Uh, when women become mothers, then they kind of say, well, I want to protect my daughter. But um, I, I don't know how much you can protect um, especially when you're at an age when, when there's a lot of sexual experimentation and so forth, um, I think about these uh, chastity balls or these things where you know they, they take they, they get um, rigid, uh, rings where they pledge their virginity um uh, you know they have like a little ceremony like a little dance where they wear white dresses and this is the part that grosses me out they're pledging their virginity and their chastity to their fathers it, it, i had at least one of these occasions had the phrase the, the the lord is your husband and your father is your boyfriend now I, there's all sorts of things that are wrong with that because we are again we are not talking about gods we are talking about human beings here and um these sort of um Purity rings and chastity balls. I I find the whole thing very offensive because it kind of goes back to the idea, you know, back to when there was kind of a bride price or when women were were marketed like cattle, basically, and uh, her virginity was considered to be something that commanded a higher price. So I—that's I, why I'm saying that I, I am not so bent on purity for teenagers. I mean, yeah, you got to watch out for sexually transmitted disease. You, you got to be careful of pregnancy. I mean, obviously, you don't—you don't, you don't want to get involved in these things. You don't want to make lifetime commitments at 14. Um, but by the same token, um, we, we're way, way too, um, too locked down, and 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 so then a lot of a lot of things happen that we don't want to happen because people are not properly educated. They don't properly uh, protect themselves. Um, they you know, uh, it's, it's just this whole idea that, uh, and the idea that the girl is sort of the property of her father until she's 18 is just, I, I just find the whole idea that anybody's the property of anybody is, is disgusting. I understand your parents are responsible for you until you reach a certain age, but I don't, um, you know, I, I just feel like a lot of autonomy that one should be developing. Instead, it's just kind of like the stilted, no, you know, you don't, don't ever do this and don't ever do that and, um, until you're eight, like 18, you're magically, you know, fit for it. So, um, I don't know, lots to think about there. Okay, the last piece that I want to talk about with this is the idea of the eternal return, Um, and this has to do with uh, Orphism and with the mystery cults. Now, Orphism was a um, I guess you could call it a religious movement of a kind. Um, I mean, Radcliffe Edmonds had a kind of uh, said that uh, the, the Orphic movement is kind of like talking about the New Age movement. I mean, it's, it's um, it, you're, you're talking about a variety of different beliefs, not a particular religion per se. Okay, but there is a sort of a collection of beliefs uh, that may come from a variety of sources. A lot of Orphism, they could come out of Far Eastern beliefs. Some of it comes out of certainly out of Near Eastern beliefs. Uh, there are some connections to Zoroastrianism and that kind of thinking. Uh, whether other groups like um, Judaism or anything else had any influence at that time i don't I don't really know i don't re- haven't really seen any evidence for that but Orphism um, has its own um, it's probably I consider it to be kind of the pre con- preconfiguring um, uh, religious movement that predates um, or that, that one of the things that paves the way for Christianity there's kind of a, a perfect recipe of things for Christianity there was um, the presence of Ju- the Judaism in the Roman Empire there's the <clears throat> le- the rule-bound legislative way that Romans um, manage their own religion everything's very um, you know highly regulated and ritualized and um, and then there's, uh, <clears throat> you know, then you, you kind of have things like the Orphic beliefs, which which um, are the first ones to put forward kind of an idea of something like salvation. You don't, have, you don't really have what we think of as salvation. There's nothing to be saved from in ancient pagan religion. It's just you're dead. You, you go to the underworld. That's it. What the Orphics hoped for in the underworld was that they could go to one of the better places. You know, certainly there's, there's, there's the depths of Tartarus, which only the really, really, really bad people got sent to. And I think they only name, like, seven in Greek mythology. There's not that many. Um, and then, um, you know, and then there's, like, the Elysian fields, which are, you know, pretty and pleasant and ruled over by Kronos. And, you know, um, they're reminiscent of, you know, pleasant the pleasantness of life on Earth, where the heroes tend to be transported and, and so forth. So the idea is that the Orphics is that when they died, they were hoping to... Uh, through their series of passwords and initiations, you know, knew how to, um, they, 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 would, they were buried with gold tablets around their necks that had kind of like the passwords for, you know, okay, when you, in, when you go to the underworld and you encounter this being, you tell them this. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. It's very Egyptian, actually, because in Egypt, um, the, the soul of the dead, um, you know, a lot of these hieroglyphs are, are formulas, you know, the, the, the formulas that you need to say to, to pass through the different gates Um, on the journey of the sun and and, uh, you know because it was kind of akin to that so that you um, were not you know sort of lost forever or or thrown off with um, what their equivalent of demons were Um, this was the way and and of course you had a certain formula to show that you were righteous in life whether you really were or not (laughs) you just had to be able to say all the right formulas so orphism is quite similar in that respect in that there's there's a certain um, formulas or things that you will recite and that these will, um, you know, it, it, helps, it helps remove the fear of death, because, you know, if death that you're facing, it's like, oh, man, it's just gloomy, and people just wander around, and it's like Achilles in, in The Odyssey when he tells uh, Odysseus, you know, better to be a slave on Earth than be a king in the underworld, you know, that it's, it's just so, so depressing. So this, this kind of makes things a little less depressing. <clears throat> now, the Orphics have their own cosmogony, um, when I say that, this has to do with how how the world came into being and how humans came into being in particular. Um, in this one, Zeus and Persephone um, create Zegrus, or Dionysus. Okay, and Dionysus is going said to be the successor of Zeus, okay, that, you know, he's going to be the next king of the gods. Now, this doesn't sound a little bit like Christianity, son of God, you know, son of the king of, you know. Um, <clears throat> if, if you notice that parallel there, it's there. And... Uh, but the Titans, okay, the, the who are, there are, are very jealous because they don't like the idea of this child being able to take over. So they lure him away with toys and things, and then they kill him, and they cook him, and they eat him, okay? And uh, both Athena and Zeus manage to rescue—actually, um, um, Zeus, Athena, and I think Apollo, too. They manage to save parts of the baby, particularly his heart, and then they are able to resurrect him. Now, okay, you know, the son of God who dies and is resurrected, mm-hmm okay uh yeah and again this (laughs) this happened before the other story so there's there's definitely a connection between those stories doesn't happen in, in the same way but you get the idea it, 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 it paves the way for that kind of mythology to, be, to take hold in um, mainstream religion. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> so, um, so, of course, Zeus, to punish the Titans, he strikes them with his thunderbolt and reduces them to ashes. And out of the ashes come mortals, human beings. And, of course, because they've eaten of the flesh of the, quote-unquote, savior Dionysus, they have a divine spark in them but because they also have the wicked nature of the Titans, and Plato talks about this. Uh, this is where we know that this attitude is there. Um, and so does Olympiodorus. They both kind of talk about the, the wicked Titan nature, um, which, again, I don't think is supposed to be the original um, way of looking at the Titans. They're not necessarily wicked. They just, they just tended to be—they um, lost the war with the Olympians, basically, and they, they tended to be more chaotic and— um, monstrous forces but that doesn't mean they were evil but that was the way of course once we get once we get to plato uh now now we start throwing ethics into religion and screwing the whole thing up so in any case titans are viewed as wicked and so that humans have both a wicked and a divine you know base and divine nature okay so that's that's the story and the idea is again this idea of purification purifying yourself of those those wicked elements they practiced aestheticism they you know um perhaps even vegetarianism, you know, wore only certain types of clothes. You know, there's, there's different accounts from different places. And, uh, and the mystery cults, okay, this was the idea that one could, um, could be initiated um, into this cult and that when one went through the initiation of the mysteries, that basically one's fear of death was removed. We don't know a whole lot about the mysteries. Um, we know there's this, uh, what they call it, the lichnon, or the little, ba- it's like a basket, and that something is kept in the basket, uh, possibly a snake. Um, it, 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 there's a there's a rite of initiation. There's some images that in um, villas in Rome, because these mysteries were also popular in Rome, probably fairly late, even after uh, Christianity became a thing and paganism became outlawed. Um, they, they died out probably shortly thereafter, but the, the rites still went on. And of course they were secret, which is why nothing's really written about them. But, you know, you kind of get a sense of, um, it it kind of follows a normal initiatory pattern. There's some kind of ordeal that somebody goes through and, um, where they might be terrified by something or they might have to face some kind of a, an arduous task or, and then a secret's revealed to them. And then they, um... Are sort of like it's almost like they're reborn it's said that the eleusian mysteries had three had, had, had three cycles uh the the cycle of descent search and ascent which mirrors um demeter's search for her daughter persephone okay there's the descent into the underworld you know there, there's a the descent there's the search for her um in this case you know in, in demeter's case with the goddess hecate who lights the way in the underworld and then of course finding her daughter and the ascent back into the upper world <clears throat> But the mystery becomes sort of a context for this, um, the idea of the eternal return and a way of getting rid of the fear of death. This is probably also where ideas of metempsychosis and reincarnation found their way um, <clears throat> into Platonic thinking and into Greek religion. Um, <clears throat> certainly Plato um, talks about metempsychosis. Uh, the Vision of Ur is a uh, little story that he invents about um, and, 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 of course, this is one that features judgment after death, you know, where souls are, are judged based on how righteous they were and how, what, what, what kind of a life they led. And then, of course, they're sent, you know, so they're either sent to be punished or they're sent for their reward for a certain number of years. And then they have to come back, draw lots from the fates again, and then they're reborn. That was his idea. OK, whether this was like a common Greek idea, certainly there are ideas about punishment after death or reward after death. And, of course, then where do the punishments take place in the depths of the earth. And then everything else is kind of moved. Everything's kind of shifted upward to the sky. Even Hades at one point is shifted to the sky. And uh, so we see that the realm of, um, you know, that well, that the earth, I suppose, and what's under the earth is still considered to be sort of, you know, Plato equated it with what was dense. And what was heavy and what weighted you down, and you know, so it, it's definitely it gets a negative association. Um, Hecate became associated with the sphere of the moon, and of course, the sun was associated with the heavens and, and with the light and with uh, you know um, you know the lightness of the, the airy soul um, that that, um, that takes off free of all of those um, in, you know material entanglements. Uh, and this is something we kind of take for granted as as a means of thinking about um, the soul and about life after death. But um, it wasn't always the way it was, and I would not necessarily say it's the best way to look at things. Um, that's that's so su- that's a, that's at least part of the subject of my book. So um, I don't I don't want to digress too much into that here. It's easy to do. So the eleusinian Mysteries of, of um, Demeter and Persephone these they become sort of the um, You know, it's interesting how that becomes kind of a a precursor to our modern way of thinking about life after death. Okay, and uh, you can take that however you want. I'm not making a value judgment on it. But to me, it is kind of an important um, change in religious thinking. It may not have been mainstream at first, but then later kind of spreads and becomes mainstream and between that and, and and sort of philosophers who who were devotees of people like Pythagoras, um, and and certainly had a Zoroastrian um, element to their thinking. Pythagoras seems also very what what's attributed to him also seems very much um, Zoroastrian or Persian, you know, in its inflection. And uh, and again, that's that's an I, that's a subject I could I could go off on, but um, Zoroastrianism is different because it. it posits a um duality between good and evil okay that there's a battle between good and evil and this wasn't the case before you weren't talking about um good gods versus evil gods the gods were all they were they could be they could be either they could they could be very cruel and they could be very kind it didn't it didn't there wasn't this idea that um you've got this wicked faction you know um you know this idea of damnation or, or destroying your soul versus, the, versus all the good gods and the angels and so forth. Um, that, that idea is, comes later, and uh, it, it's kind of defined modern religion. In my opinion, it's to its detriment, okay? It's part of the reason why I do this and why I do this podcast is to talk about, um, you know, what, what I think is the, um, you know, what, what I think we kind of need to try to disentangle ourselves from that kind of thinking. Okay, because, um, because it has other consequences and side effects that are not good. Okay, that's I think all I'm going to say about Persephone and the story of Persephone. Um, again, um, I'd like to uh, thank you for listening. Um, I encourage you to check out chthonia.net where not only do you have all the podcasts, but you also have um, my collections of stories. Stories are coming along. I'm going to tell you that. Um, I have one novel that should be finished by the end of the month. And another one that, that won't be, I, I, the finishing touches won't be done too long thereafter. I've um, got, got some classes coming up, uh, so, so definitely check out the website. Um, also check out metapsychosis.com. Um, we're all on, all of our uh, episodes are on metapsychosis.com slash series slash and I'm also on social media. You can find me on Instagram, at, as at Cuthonia, uh, excuse me, I can't even talk, um, as Cothonia Podcast, and same with Twitter. And um, it's two words, I think, on Facebook, Cothonia Podcast, one word on the others. And on YouTube, I'm just plain old Cuthonia. Um So you can, you can find me in all those places. And if you would like to um, help contribute to this effort, you know that I can spend more time on this and more detail and do some more interesting things. I encourage you, um, if you if you're willing to please donate to my patreon page patreon.com slash Um, All my current patrons are very much appreciated. Thank you very much. and um, if you if you are interested, um, definitely we, I'd be very happy to welcome you to my family of patrons who, who do get certain special things. We, uh, I do um, occasionally I do special patron only videos. Um, I have special discounts for patrons on, on things that I do, um, you know, on classes, on readings, on things like that. And, uh, the, the patrons also get, um, early preview of, you know, they're the first ones to get access to the podcast. And then they also are the ones who, um, get early access to other writings and things that I have. Um, but you know, by virtue of the, uh, the donation level, which you can check out. Okay. And with that, um, I will talk to you in the next episode. Bye now.